Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with 1 being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. Remember, this episode is rated a 5, and it's part 2 of Chronicle 9 titled Senseless Murder of Boredom. Last time on part one, we learned that Australian baseball player Chris Lane, who was in Oklahoma on a college baseball scholarship, was randomly gunned down and killed while he was out on a training run one warm, sunny afternoon on August 16th, 2013. So without further ado, let's continue the story. According to crime reports, the three teens were bored and apparently looking for something to do, I guess. It was nearing the end of the summer in Duncan, Oklahoma, which only has a population of about 23,000, as I mentioned in part one. So I guess the town just doesn't have a lot to offer bored teens besides a skating rink, a bowling alley, and some sort of a teen club. So listen to this. Earlier that morning, on August 16th, 2013, the same day that Chris was shot and killed, a 75-year-old man, Jim Brasher, woke up to find his donkey dead. At about 8 a.m., Jim's donkey had been shot in the back of her leg with a shotgun. And when police arrived, they quickly determined it was simply for the thrill and sport of killing in a drive-by shooting. The suspects... They were later identified as three teenagers, Edwards, Luna, and Jones, who were driving by in a 2003 Ford Focus, the exact same suspects that would later be involved in Chris Lane's murder. It seems like the teens escalated in their boredom and went from shooting a donkey to a human, apparently from the rush of it or the quote, fun of it, end quote, according to the Australian Broadcast Corporation. So if that's really all there is to this, that the teens were just bored, I mean, have you heard of reading a freaking book or, hey, listening to a podcast or dragging Maine or, hell, even drinking cheap Natty Light and Boone's Farm wine or smoking weed or whatever, maybe go out in the country and get frisky in the back of a car like normal small town teens do. I grew up in a tiny town of about 1,500 people, so we didn't have a bowling alley or a skating rink, and we dang sure didn't have any type of a teen club, unless you count the 4-H club, but we still found plenty of things to do that didn't involve taking another person's life. So I can't help but think that there is much, much more to this story than simply boredom or at the very least, as I'm sure all of you do as well, 
I just need more information and more of an explanation than simply boredom. So I had to dig in a little deeper. Let's start by going back to the day of the shooting. The shooting of Chris, not the donkey, although they technically happened on the same day by the same people. But immediately after the teen suspects shot Chris in the back that day, around 2.55 p.m., they sped off. According to police reports, the teens headed down Twisted Oak Drive in Duncan through the parking lot of a Mexican food restaurant and then around to the back of the Duncan Inn, a local motel, which was located next to the restaurant. There, they stopped and allegedly hid the gun they used to shoot and kill Chris under the hood of the black Ford Focus they were driving. Then they left and drove to the county courthouse to drop off Edwards, which was around 3.21 p.m., just 26 minutes after Chris was shot. Apparently, Edwards had an appointment with county juvenile services at 3.30 p.m. that day for a previous unrelated incident. And while he was there, Edwards immediately began talking about the shooting of Chris. Once Edwards arrived to the courthouse, he told his juvenile detention officer, Roger Wills, that he was receiving a bunch of texts from his friends around town about the shooting. Yes, he was talking about Chris. He told Wills that some of his friends were even asking him if he had done it or been a part of it. If that didn't seem shady as hell to those at the Stevens County Courthouse in Duncan, then I don't know what did, especially with Edwards knowing about it and talking about it so soon after the heinous crime. But apparently, nobody at the time really questioned Edwards or his involvement. Instead, they focused on the reason he was there. He had been suspended from Duncan High School, and while he was there at the courthouse, the district attorney called the high school on his behalf to ensure he could return back to school in the fall. Meanwhile, as Edwards was waiting, he asked the DA if he could use her computer to charge his phone. She said yes, but what Edwards didn't know was that his phone began transferring all of his photos and videos to her computer. That would later be seized as evidence. So let's talk a little more about this first suspect, the youngest of the three, James Edwards Jr., According to an exclusive Vanity Fair article, Edwards, a 15-year-old African-American, was believed to be in the passenger seat of the car at the time of the shooting. Edwards liked attention, whether it be negative or positive attention, and he often posted vulgar and repulsive pictures and content to social media, probably seeking some sort of a reaction, whether good or bad. He also liked to fight, and he would often brag about his throwing of hands or whatever you want to call it by posting videos of him fighting on social media, especially if he came out on top in the fights. However, he also had a, quote, encyclopedic knowledge of music, end quote, particularly rap and country, and he was just gifted in music. He could play or quickly learn to play any instrument that was put in front of him. Edwards lived alone with his 61-year-old father, James Edwards Sr., who worked in maintenance, and they lived together in a low-income part of town. The rest of Edwards' family, though, was incarcerated. His mother, at the time, was serving a 12-year prison sentence for, quote, obtaining prescription drugs under false pretenses after violating parole for a previous drug conviction, end quote. Also, his half-sister was in prison for drugs as well, and his half-brother was incarcerated for second-degree rape. 
at 15, if anything was keeping him in school and on a somewhat straight path, it was high school wrestling. He basically tried to keep his grades and attendance up just so he could wrestle because it was basically his only outlet. But he soon lost sight of that when he was suspended from school his freshman year. One day, a classmate took a picture of Edwards on the toilet and posted it to social media for a while before eventually deleting it. Edwards, in response, and to get even, took a video of that classmate at a urinal and also posted it to social media. Though it didn't really bother the kid, it bothered the kid's father, who made a big deal out of it to the school, and as a result, Edwards was suspended for cyberbullying. Edwards told an adult friend, quote, this white kid, he did the same thing I did, and he did it first, and I get kicked out of school, end quote. He was later able to go back to school, but according to the Vanity Fair article, that first suspension basically broke him, and he was never the same again. He was discouraged and eventually ended up getting suspended again for a similar incident later that school year. After his latest suspension, Edwards began basically doing hood rat things around town and flexing, I think that's what they call it. He was selling marijuana before it became medically legal in the state, flashing wads of $100 bills around and sporting a Louis Vuitton backpack. It seems as though this is when he became really close to Chancey Luna, the suspect who was accused of actually pulling the trigger of the gun that killed Chris. But we will come back to Luna in a minute. Edwards and Luna began hanging out a lot, and Edwards would often stay at Luna's house. They even began posting pictures together where they appeared to be flashing Crips gang signs, and Edwards actually told his friends that he was indeed a member of the Crips gang. Edwards also confided in his surrogate mother and told her he was debating between staying on the straight and narrow and becoming an actual member of the gang. Unfortunately, his most recent tweets in June of 2013, just a couple months before the shooting, showed that he had chosen the latter. And I'm going to warn you, well, I'm going to read the tweets, but I'm going to warn you that they are very vulgar and very offensive with the F-bomb scattered throughout. So if that's not your cup of tea, I recommend skipping ahead 30 seconds or so. But I do want to mention them in this episode because I think it shines some light into really what was happening with this kid and his mentality prior to the shooting. It also shows that he does seem to definitely have ideologies of being part of the Crips gang. So this is what his tweets read. Hose will be hose. About to go shoot. She said I fuck better than that other N-word. Only he actually spells it out. But when I said I'm about to come, she told me pull the fuck out. I'm mad as fuck. Hose think STD means suck that dick. Fuck everybody. Family, friends, everybody. Bitch, I'm on my own. Don't call me fuck everybody. Okay. <laughs> and so... Part of the reason why I wanted to read those to you is because all those F-U-C-K words in his tweets are actually spelled F-U-C-C. And whenever he spelled the D word instead of, you know, D-I-C-K, he spelled it D-I-C-C. Well, I just thought the kid did not know how to spell. And I was like, because I'm a journalism teacher and I was thinking he needs some major uh, spell check going on. Like, why is he spelling it like that? That's weird. But... Thank goodness for my significant other, my boyfriend, who whenever I was telling him about this story, I was like, why is it spelled like that? And he told me that. And then, of course, I, you know, I did some research. And yes. Um, so whenever you someone is a part of the the Crips gang, um, 
CK stands, it kind of symbolizes or stands for Crips killer or something like that. And so they don't, whenever you're writing or whatever you're doing, like if you're part of the Crips gang, then you just spell things with double C's instead of CK. So that's why I wanted to read those tweets to you because all those spellings were, like I said, kind of evidence that he was going toward or was considered himself officially part of the Crips gang. Then just three days before the shooting, according to CBS News, Edwards tweeted, with my N-word, when it's time to start taking lives. And yes, he spelled lives, L-I-F-E apostrophe S. That I do think he needed some spell check for. And so, yes, that was just that tweet was just three days before the shooting. So now that we know a little bit more about Edwards, let's talk about Chancey Luna, who at the time of the shooting was 16 years old, just a year older than Edwards. Luna, a mixed race teen with a white mother and a black father, was a quiet kid who lived alone with his 38 year old mother, Jennifer Luna. But living alone with her was relatively recent for him because in December 2012, just months before the shooting, Luna's half-brother died. Reports don't specify exactly how or what caused his death, but he passed away on Christmas Day, December 25th of 2012, um, after he was rushed to the hospital in Oklahoma City. Then, if that wasn't a hard enough blow, just five days later on December 30th, 2012, Luna's stepfather, who had basically raised him as his own, was killed when he hit a manhole and crashed the motorcycle he was driving. After experiencing both of those traumatic losses, Luna, needless to say, pretty much became even more introverted and quiet than he already was, at least at home and around his mother. Then, At some point during his sophomore year in school, he ended up getting the flu and he missed so much school and got so behind on schoolwork that his mother decided it would be best to pull him out and just let him completely recuperate, probably from both the flu and mourning the loss of his brother and stepfather, and she thought he could just repeat his sophomore year beginning in the fall of 2013. But... Not being in school meant that Luna had a lot of time on his hands to do a whole lot of nothing. So he began hanging out in the streets and also doing some hood rat stuff. Jennifer Luna knew of some of it, but being the single working mom that she was, she mostly saw the good and sweet nature of her son who would treat her with respect and dote on her when she was sick. She kind of just figured he was more of a wannabe gang member than an actual full-fledged gang member because he got into a little trouble here or there, but to her, it was nothing major. Basically, he got caught smoking pot and missed Duncan's curfew for minors, but not super serious or worrisome behavior. In other words, Jennifer Luna could never imagine her son even being involved with a shooting, let alone being the one who actually pulled the trigger. But the evidence was leading police to that exact conclusion. Michael Jones, the third suspect in this case, was the oldest of the three teens. A white man, he was 17 at the time of the shooting, and police alleged he was the one driving the black Ford Focus. According to the Vanity Fair article, Jones could be loud, similar to Edwards, but not necessarily in the same way as Edwards. Instead, Jones was described as having a little man complex because he only stood about five foot three inches, plus he was a little tubby, so his loudness seemed to be his way of overcompensating for his height. 
It sounds like he was somewhat of a know-it-all too, like refusing to back down from conversations or scuffles, even if he was the one that was wrong. I can only imagine how bad this little man complex must have been. I mean, his friends even called him Tugboat as a nickname because, well, he was short and chubby. So clearly, he often got teased about his height, and one time a peer in high school even asked him if he could see over the steering wheel when he drove. Joan's parents divorced while he was still a teen, and his mother ended up moving across the state to a different city. So he was often shuttled back and forth between his mother, who moved to Altus, Oklahoma, and his father, who was still in Duncan. He was somewhat of a lazy kid, in school at least, but he was also described as a country boy who was drawn to fishing and other types of outdoor activities. But in the fall of 2012, Jones dropped out of high school and stopped living with either one of his parents. He stayed different places, including his girlfriend's house, his cousin's house, and other friends' homes. He worked a little at an auto repair shop, but he didn't have anything stable or any steady income coming in. And in the middle of not having a job, he also got his girlfriend pregnant. Oddly enough, his girlfriend, or possibly fiancé, posted pics and content on social media like it was just the best thing ever that two teens with no jobs were about to bring another human into the world. In addition, Jones had rapidly lost weight and people assumed he was using meth, which was pretty easy to find in Duncan. According to CNN, Duncan was saturated with meth labs and at least nine different labs had been discovered in the city since 2004. So now that we know a little more about the three suspects in this story, let's continue with what happened following the shooting. As I said, Michael Jones, the oldest of the teens, was said to be driving the Ford Focus, while James Edwards, the youngest, sat in the passenger seat rolling a marijuana blunt or cigarette or whatever you want to call it, but he was rolling it for them to smoke while on their drive, and Chansey Luna, 16, sat in the back. As they drove by Chris, who was running on the side of the road, completely unaware and unwarned of what was about to happen, Jones swerved toward him, according to police and witness testimony, and Luna pointed the 22 caliber revolver out the window and shot Chris in cold blood. That one shot was fatal, as we know, and Chris died on the side of the road shortly after. Of course, the city of Duncan was on high alert after everything that had happened that day, and police were on the hunt for the suspects. They had many witnesses who saw the teens around town, many witnesses who could identify the teens in the Ford Focus, as well as surveillance of them driving through the Mexican food restaurant parking lot toward the Duncan Inn, and surveillance of them dropping Edwards off at the Stevens County Courthouse. Then, later that evening, police received a call about a group of juveniles who were hanging out in the parking lot of a Baptist church, flashing and wielding guns. I bet you can guess exactly who those little hood rat juveniles were. Yep, In the mix, right there in the parking lot, all three standing next to the well-described infamous Ford Focus, police arrested Edwards, Luna, and Jones and took them into custody at about 7 p.m. But let me tell you who made the call to tip off the police about where the boys were. It was James Johnson, the father of another kid, whose name also just happened to be Chris, and he told police that the trio was looking for his son to kill him. Yeah, these kids were set to kill another person just hours after they shot and killed Chris Lane. That's what they had planned. Johnson, the father of the other Chris, told police that he thought it was all gang related. But wait, 
how did the father know this was the teen's plan that they were after his son next? Well, the little mother effers were posting about it and logging it on their social media. W-T-F. Once in custody, none of the boys seemed to care about the crime or what they had done, and they weren't being overly cooperative either. Surprise, surprise. Edwards and Luna denied that they were even in the car, but Jones's story was a little different. He did tell police that all three of them were indeed in the car, but he couldn't say exactly who pulled the trigger because he was afraid he would be killed for snitching. But ultimately, after who knows how long of an interrogation, Jones admitted that he was driving and Luna shot Chris from the back seat. The only motive he gave, though, was the fact that they were bored and, quote, thought it would be fun to do, end quote. After this confession, News 9 in Oklahoma City reported that police initially charged Luna and Edwards with first-degree murder, and Jones was charged as a youthful defender and faced one count of accessory to first-degree murder and one count of use of a motor vehicle in discharge of a weapon. Bond for Jones was set at $1 million, but Luna and Edwards were held without bond. And although the police had a confession and searched the Ford Focus, the actual murder weapon, the gun, was not immediately found. Actually, it was never found. They only found bullet casings and a shotgun shell, but I'll come back to this when I discuss the trial, which wouldn't get underway until April 2015, nearly two years later. And I will discuss the details of the trial and testimonies, but first I want to talk a little bit about Chris's friends and family and what they had to deal with in the aftermath of his death that rocked the worlds of loved ones in two different countries, both the U.S. and Australia. As news of Chris's death spread, tons of flowers, tributes, photos, as well as an Australian flag began flooding in on the side of the road at the site where Chris was shot. You can actually see a photo of the tributes on my Instagram at Campus Crime Podcast. Furthermore, Chris's parents, Peter and Donna Lane, had to somehow come to terms with what happened to their son halfway across the world. Peter Lane told reporters in Melbourne, quote, There's not going to be any good come out of this because it was just so senseless. There wasn't anything he did or could have done. He was an athlete going for a jog, like he would do five or six days a week in terms of his training schedule. It's happened. It's wrong. And we just try and deal with it the best we can. End quote. Chris's girlfriend, Sarah Harper, told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, quote, he didn't deserve any of this. It's heartbreaking that it was such a random choice those guys made that drastically altered so many lives in the process. End quote. I agree with Chris's father that it's hard to see the good in this really crappy, senseless, unnerving crime, but I do think the goodness in people definitely overflowed afterward. For example, one of Chris's former teammates from Redlands Community College, Marshall Ville, was so shattered and deeply saddened by Chris's murder that he knew he wanted to do something, anything, in Chris's honor. So he started a GoFundMe account to help Chris's family with expenses. And may I just point out here that it is not cheap to have a body taken from one country to another, particularly to countries that are 9,000 miles away. The Duncan Banner reported that Ville's goal was initially $15,000, but it far exceeded his expectations. 
over $22,000 was raised from donations that poured in because Chris had touched so many lives over the years. And Marshallville's efforts weren't the only contributions set up in remembrance of Chris. East Central University, where Chris was attending college, along with Trinity Baptist Church, started a memorial fund in Chris's honor as well. And the Essendon Baseball Club, where Chris grew up playing baseball in Australia, dedicated one of their games to him and adorned home plate with flowers and a tribute to their beloved former teammate. Kale Thaxton, a Duncan native and one of Chris's former teammates at Redlands Community College, said, quote, Chris was like a brother to many of us. He was someone we could all learn something from. He was one of my best friends, so easy to like, and he could start a conversation with anybody. He always had a smile on his face that would light up the room. He was someone we all looked up to, end quote. In essence, people had nothing but good, heartfelt, loving things to say about Chris because he was seriously just a really good guy. His coach at East Central, Dino Rosado, said, quote, When I think about Chris Lane, I think about a young man with a kind heart and a magnetic personality. I am a better man for Chris having been part of my life. He was a tireless worker on and off the field. He was an absolute joy to coach. You would never know if he was having a bad day because he always had the Chris Lane smile on, end quote. Um, so now I'm going to go ahead and move into the murder trial, which... <laughs> was for the guy who pulled the trigger, Chansey Luna. Um, the initial murder trial was, which began April 15th, 2015. And according to the reporting of Rachel Snyder for both the Duncan Banner and the Ada News, they were papers owned by the same media company, a strange story unfolded in court as the trial got underway. The first two witnesses to take the stand were Sarah Harper, Chris's girlfriend, and James Edward Jr., the youngest suspect in the passenger seat of the car, who agreed to testify against Luna and Jones for a lesser charge. Sarah's testimony, of course, was heartbreaking. She said she texted Chris around 3.30 or 4 to see if he had a key. I'm assuming she meant to her house, but Chris never responded. Sarah said that at the time when Chris didn't respond, she didn't think much about it. But when she texted him, she had no idea that Chris had already passed. Edwards, on the other hand, said that day he had made plans for Jones and Luna to pick him up from a friend's house on Country Club Road, the road where Chris was ultimately killed. Edwards testified that when they picked him up, Luna moved to the back so Edwards could sit in front. He said he then proceeded to roll a marijuana joint on top of his laptop, so he was looking down most of the time, apparently. Suddenly, he said, he saw the jogger, Chris, coming toward them, and the car swerved to the right, and he heard a loud bang. Um, wait, you saw Chris coming toward you, but wasn't he shot in the back? So, you guys passed him, and then Luna stuck the gun out the window, basically looking backward, and shot him? I don't know. That doesn't really add up to me. To me, I initially pictured them coming up from behind Chris and basically surprising him from behind and shooting him. But Edward's testimony says otherwise. Several things in Edward's testimony, though, don't add up to me. For instance, he also said they saw Chris from down the street while they were stopped at a red light. But police reports and news stories say the teens were at a dilapidated house on Country Club Road and saw Chris from the house. To be honest, I'm not sure we will ever really know how it specifically unfolded, except for the ending, that Chris was shot and killed in a senseless murder of boredom. 
Once the teens got to the Duncan Inn and drove around back, Edwards testified that Jones, quote, popped the hood and moved some stuff around. I used some strong language telling them I was ready to leave, end quote. Edwards also admitted in his testimony that he saw Jones and Luna hide the gun under the hood, and he also said Luna told him that Luna thought the gun was loaded with blanks. Edwards said he thought that was strange, though, because he had never heard of blanks being used in a firearm before. Um, okay. Regardless, Edwards claimed he was unaware of whether or not Luna and Jones had made a plan to shoot someone prior to picking him up. Basically, Edwards said, he had nothing to do with premeditated murder because even though he was there at the crime, he had no warning about what they were about to do. I find this hard to believe because Vanity Fair reported that Jones was actually the third will, not Edwards, that Edwards and Luna were very close friends and Jones was more of an acquaintance. My personal assumption is that they hung out with him because he had a car. But hey, what do I know? Anyway, moving on, Edwards admitted that he did make a call to another person, Odyssey Barnes, from jail after he was arrested. He called Barnes to check on the status or whereabouts of the gun used to kill Chris. Apparently, the gun had been given to Barnes, who was 23 at the time, to dispose of. According to the Ada News, Barnes pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact for his role in helping hide the gun, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison with 13 years suspended, so he would really only serve 12 of those years. According to the reporting of Scott Rains for the Lawton Constitution, Barnes said the teens did bring the gun to his apartment the evening of the shooting, and he took it and threw it in some tall grass near his apartment. However, the gun has never been found by police to this day. Luna's trial, which was originally slated to last for 10 days, only lasted about a week, and it was no surprise that it took the jury not even two hours to deliberate and find Luna guilty of first-degree murder. According to the Ada News, the judge immediately sentenced Luna to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Prosecutors could not seek the death penalty because Luna was 16, a juvenile at the time of the murder, though he was tried as an adult in court. But in a possible twist of fate for Luna, his life sentence without parole was vacated by the Oklahoma Court of Appeals, which ordered the trial court to resentence Luna to a lesser punishment. I know, you're thinking, what the hell? Why? Well, because the U.S. Supreme Court in January 2016 barred life sentences without parole for crimes committed before age 18. This included first-degree murder. However, according to the only news medium that followed up with Luna's resentencing, the Lawton Constitution, Luna received his original sentence of life without parole. That doesn't really add up to me because I thought the Oklahoma Court of Appeals ordered the trial court to give him a lesser sentence, but either way, Luna is still behind bars and he will be for a long time. According to the Ada News, Jones, the oldest of the three teens and the driver of the car, did not have a trial because he ended up pleading guilty to his charges and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 38 years. As for Edwards, the youngest of the three, his judicial proceedings were halted in 2015 pending his appeal of being charged as an adult to accessory to murder instead of, you know, the first degree murder charge. Then, in September 2015, a judge ordered Edwards to attend boot camp. 
Upon returning from that boot camp in June 2016, when Edwards was 18 years old, he was sentenced to the maximum of 25 years in prison, but the judge suspended 10 years of that sentence and credited him with three years of time served. You can add that up if you really want. It's 12 years, I think. (laughs) But in the end, it doesn't really matter because in 2018, the Oklahoma Department of Corrections released Edwards from prison on a GPS monitoring program. So he ended up finding his way to freedom. Yep, that's right. The same kid who was talking about taking lives when he was 15 is now 22 or 23 years old. And I know that a lot can happen. I mean, I was a completely different person, I think, at 15 than I was at 22 or 23. But still, he's walking around free. According to the Lawton Constitution, as of 2020, Edwards was out of prison and in a sober living facility where he simply has to check in with a probation office in Oklahoma City. That is basically the end of the story, but I don't want to end this episode without reflecting on the victim of this crime instead of the accused. So I'll leave you with some words from Chris's girlfriend, Sarah, who I think summed it up best when she said Chris was, quote, perfect beyond measure and he will be greatly missed, end quote. Okay, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 9. But again, if you're liking what you're hearing, please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to Campus Crime Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts. It's really what helps fans like you know that this podcast is out there. So until next time, bye y'all. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.